0: Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the ideal. I am the model. I'm the true. I'm not just a leader. I shepherd people. I am what you are to do with people around you. First time that uh, Peter ever heard Jesus or saw Jesus, he he was in a boat. Uh, Matthew chapter 4 tells the story. Mark chapter 1 tells the story. Peter was sitting in a boat because he was a fisherman and Jesus walked by and in Matthew 4 he said to Peter, come follow me and I will make you a fisher of people. Boats are offices. (laughs) They're home courts for fishermen. It's where they work. It's where they get things done. After a while They're familiar with every square inch of that thing. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, using one of the two great industries in Galilee at that time, farming and fishing, just about everybody was tied up or close to one of those two industries. And so Jesus simply grabs one of the metaphors that Peter would be familiar with. It's fishing. And he says, come follow me and I will make you a fisher I will cause you teach you to fish for people in Luke chapter 5 it's a slightly different story Peter's sitting in his boat and Jesus jumps in it and he asks Peter to push himself off from the shore a little bit so he could preach so Peter pushes his boat away and while he's sort of steadying things you ever tried to stand up in a boat Jesus stands up and starts preaching to people on the shore. And Peter's thinking to himself, this is kind of cool. I mean, he's a pretty good preacher. (laughs) He's not bad. And he's using my boat. But when the sermon is over in Luke 5, it says Jesus turns and he looks at Peter and says, why don't you push out, go even further out into the deep and drop your nets. For a big catch. Well Peter's thinking to himself, you ought to stick to preaching. I mean, you don't really... He says, Jesus, we've been out here all night, and we haven't caught anything, but out of deference to you, sure. He pushes the boat out and goes out into the deep, and when they get out there, they drop the nets, and Peter's not expecting anything. And all of a sudden, bam, there's a familiar drag on the net. And he starts to pull it in and he can't. And people come from the sides in their boats and get over there and bowie up next to him, And they jump over and start pulling the nets out. Peter is overcome by his doubt. He says to Jesus, go away from me. I'm a, I'm a sinful person. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. This is a powerful metaphor for us who follow Jesus. Placed as it is at the beginning of Jesus' call, it signals to us that a call to follow is a call to fish. Anyone who will be a follower of Jesus will be taught to fish. The phrase, from now on, you will be fishing for people indicates that it would start on that day, but He would never outgrow this calling. From now on, not until you run out of sinners, but from now on, a call to follow me is a call to fish for people. Can I I say this to College Church? Because, man, I'm one with you. The longer you've been a Christian, the fewer sinners you know. You've either got them all saved, Or you don't hang out with them anymore. Or you just hang out once in a while and never bring it up anymore. But if I hear Jesus right, a call to follow Him means from now on, if you're following me, I will keep you sensitive to lost people around you. The call to fish is a powerful metaphor for evangelism. Yes? The smarter you are, the longer you've been a Christian, the closer you get to the core of a church like this one, the fewer fish you know. You've cleaned them all. Some churches don't even think about fish anymore. They say, we let other people catch them. We clean them. But that's not the call of a disciple. So on the day that Peter denied Jesus, three times he was said, you know this guy. And, and each time he kept saying, I swear I don't know this guy. And the last time someone said, you know this guy, Peter swore with an oath. I swear to God himself, I don't know this guy. And Luke chapter 22 says when he said it, Jesus turned and looked at him. You ever had something like that before? He doesn't have to say anything. And Peter had one of those moments that he had in the boat when Jesus showed him how to fish he was just overcome with grief and sorrow and penance whatever it is in Luke 22 and it says in another gospel Peter just went out and it was night so after Jesus come back from the dead (laughs) Peter's thinking to himself oh good this ended well That wasn't a really good night the other day, but this ended right. And he'd heard that Jesus was alive, maybe even seen Him once or twice. But there was a a scene in John chapter 21, you just heard it read a moment ago, where Jesus is standing on the shore and the fishermen are in their boats. And Peter does what fishermen do. He says, I'm going to do the thing I know how to do. He says, at the beginning of John 21, I'm going to go fish. Why are you going to do that? I know how to do that. So he gets in his boat and he goes out to fish and they haven't caught anything all night, just like Luke chapter 5. They all of a sudden look to the shore. Jesus is standing on the shore and he yells out and he says, Phallus, you haven't caught anything, have you? (laughs) That's what he really said. Some translations say, have you caught anything? But really, in the original language, it's more rhetorical. What he said is, you haven't caught anything, have you? Part of you is thinking, shut up! And one of them yells back, no! And this voice, and he's a hundred yards away. He's a football field away. And what he says is, throw the net on the other side. Just like Luke chapter five. And Peter's thinking, I don't know who you are. Sure and they throw the net on the other side. Bam, he feels that same familiar drag and they start pulling in the nets. And when that happened, John, who's in the boat, looks over and he whispers to Peter, it's the Lord. You don't know what to feel at this point. Either go glory, hallelujah, or you say turn around and roll like mad in the other direction. He says, it's the Lord. Peter dives overboard and starts swimming like fury for the shore. Right behind him are the disciples in the boat. When they get up to the shore it's an awkward moment. Jesus already has a fire started. He already has fish and loaves on it. Every one of the details have been carefully nuanced. It's a charcoal fire like it was the night he betrayed him. There are fish and loaves like there was in the feeding of the 5,000. And the closer they get to the fire, Jesus says, let's have breakfast. Bring some of the fish you've caught. We'll eat. Now, some of you, when you read this story, you envision this Hallmark movie. Well, first of all, why are you even watching Hallmark? But that aside, you envision Peter and Jesus sort of coming together and bonding beautifully in this moment. But if you read the story and don't read stuff into the story, you find weird things like they never mention each other's names. They just sort of put the fish down and they just sort of look at each other and Start eating. And when the meal is over, Jesus breaks the silence and says, Simon, son of John, hasn't called him that since the first day he met him. Uh Uh-oh. Do you love me more than this? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. Feed my lambs. Simon, do you love me? Lord, you know these things. You know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. Simon, you love me? Jesus, is there an echo in here? You know, that wasn't in there, by the way, I added that. You know That I love you, Jesus says, feed my sheep. Now, this story's been told many, many times, and it's usually told for the right reason. A lot of Greek scholars who like to play around with language point out the difference between phileo and agape. They point out the difference between lambs and sheep. They point out the difference between feed and take care of. I want to put all of that aside for a moment and point out the obvious. Jesus is asking Peter three times because he denied him three times. This is a mulligan. This is a do-over. And so we preach sermons on forgiveness and second chances. But if I can, I'd like to point out a couple more things about this passage that you might have missed. The first is that the metaphor changes. Jesus is not calling Peter to be a fisherman. He's calling him to be a shepherd. In this moment, in this moment, Peter's occupation changes from catching to taking care of. So just like we have some people that have been Christians all of their lives that they don't even think about fishing. We have others who only think about fishing but they never learn to take care of the fish they caught. You still with me? Until we learn to feed and to take care of the people we evangelize, our community becomes a farm club or a feeder system for other teachers and other churches who actually do take care of people. And so the call is not simply to catch them. The call is to take care of the people you caught. You won't say it, I will. Amen. That's good. That's true. Point something else out. Peter receives the call to shepherd in his worst moment, not his best moment. He didn't graduate from college and say, Great, now you have a degree, go shepherd. He just failed Jesus. Three times. Jesus looked at him dead in the eye. Peter was so humiliated, he walked away without saying a word. It was the worst possible moment, and it was the very moment Jesus called him back. And let the record show, he wasn't simply calling him back to be one of the boys. He wasn't saying, Oh, Peter, welcome back to the club. He was calling him back and elevating his call. Peter, it's good to see you. Still, it's time for you to raise your game. You need to shepherd people you've been catching. So Peter is called to not only do something that he knew full well how to do, which was fish. He is called to do something he doesn't really know how to do, which is shepherd. But Jesus says, just like I will teach you to fish, I will teach you to shepherd. Now, I know some of you were thinking last week when I talked about shepherding, you know what, that's not really what I'm good at. Some of you are thinking you're disqualified because things are happening. I've got issues. And some of you are just thinking, I don't really have anything to say. I'm not a a holy enough person. I don't know the reason that you disqualify yourself. But I do know this. Whatever it is that keeps you from shepherding someone else is probably not worse or more humiliating than what Peter was experiencing in that moment. And I hear Jesus say to him, in the depths of that moment, you are not disqualified. You can shepherd. All of you. So so now you're looking at me, and you're still thinking, I'm not sure. Here's the deal. Say you're not interested. Say you don't care but don't say you can't do it don't say you can't do it just say you don't want to that's more real but if God has put people around you you can shepherd yes one more observation we're just warming up by the way one more observation Jesus connects shepherding With loving. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. And I, for a long time I misread this. I thought Jesus was saying to Peter, if you love me, you will feed my sheep. If you love me, prove it by feeding my sheep. What Jesus was actually saying is, love is the basis of shepherding. Peter, when you really love me, you will naturally take care of my sheep. It's what lovers of Jesus do. So every time I go to disqualify myself, And say that I am not competent enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not ready enough. I have to settle other things first. I just hear that voice. Yeah, Steve, you have a lot of things. And I can point out a few others. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Oh, you know I do. All right, then. Let's get started. Yes? Yes? So, the first thing we do to get started is to accept responsibility for the spiritual vitality of people that are around us. Say that again. When we do what shepherds do, we accept responsibility for the spiritual vitality of people that are around us. Twelve years ago, um, the Gallup organization began a pretty intensive study on the state of the American workplace, and what they discovered was staggering. They They did thousands Of interviews, personal one-on-one interviews, and they created a grid of 12 factors that indicate a fully engaged person. They then put that grid of 12 factors over the top of other people inside of organizations around America And they discovered some staggering numbers. Just so you don't get psyched out by this, just so you don't minimize this, the survey was done with over 25 million people in 189 different countries and over 60 different languages. That is a boatload of people. So what they found when they laid over this grid of indicators was pretty conclusive evidence. Here's what they found. 70% of the people in the American workforce are either disengaged or actively disengaged. By disengaged, I mean they come to work and they kill time. They do their NFL fantasy stuff while they're at work and occasionally pull off to deal with a customer. I think I ran into a couple of these people. They loiter in the halls. They are not interested or care much about customer satisfaction. They have conversations, lots of them, but their conversations almost never deal with the topic of their job or doing it better. They are always thinking about the next break or when time is up. They are disengaged. 52%, over half, of the country who goes to work tomorrow will be disengaged. Another 18% are actively disengaged. These are ones who not only don't care and lean back and just do their hours, these are people who actually undermine what the fully engaged people are doing. And so they're not just wasting time, they're actually sabotaging the work of the organization. They quit more often, They get sick more often. They break more things. And they scuttlebutt every conversation. Seventy percent of the people who go to work tomorrow are in one of those two categories. Why am I talking about this? Because the call to accept responsibility is a summons to lead those categories. Come on, church. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that they're talking about some other 70% because they're not. They're talking about some of us. Are you with me? Some of you are saying, crucify him, crucify him. (laughs) The call to be engaged Or the call to shepherd is the call to lean in to what is happening in the place where you work or where you live or the people around you. It is not a call to lean back and hope somebody else picks it up. Because see, some of us who go to work tomorrow, who have influence, want authority. Well, I can't do this until I have authority. So I went and talked to people who actually have authority. Guess what? They don't know it. They're all saying, I need sovereignty, not authority. The call to shepherd is a call to assume whatever place you have and begin to take responsibility for the spiritual vitality of the people that are around you. Can't say that enough. There's one other thing I can't say enough the call to shepherd is primarily a spiritual venture there is so much leadership material out there that the second we drop the word shepherd the temptation is for it to get swept up in leadership language and say so, <laughs> i know what you're saying It's another way of saying leadership. Leadership is an essential part of shepherding. But leadership is not the whole thing. So we would say everything doesn't rise and fall on leadership. Because leadership isn't everything. It's part of. Of what shepherds do the metaphor that Jesus uses in John chapter 10 makes this pretty clear he says in John chapter 10 that we're gonna imagine they have sheep back here all right this is sheep gate by the way if you've not figured that out you're gonna imagine that there's sheep back here Jesus says in John chapter 10 that the one who climbs over the wall I won't is a robber and a thief But the shepherd is the one who uses the gate. He goes in through the gate. Let me go back to a metaphor I used last week. They kept every sheep in one large pen overnight. And so in the morning, the shepherd, one at a time, would open the gate, step into the gate, and would start calling his sheep by name. The sheep would recognize the voice of the shepherd and as soon as they heard the voice would start moving in the direction of that shepherd. Once he had most of them around him, he would then lead them out of the pen and go in one direction. And as soon as he did that, another shepherd would stand in and start to call his sheep by name. And as soon as he had them, he would lead them out and they would go in another direction. And so what the nomadic shepherd said is, it is common in a village in the morning for shepherds to stand around the gate Each to take their turn, and once they have their sheep, they go in a direction in lots of different directions. It's a beautiful picture of what happens in the spiritual world. But Jesus makes this abundantly clear. In the first six verses of John chapter six, Jesus is not the shepherd, He's the gate. So you have to imagine you have all of these people behind this pen, restless after 14 hours with nothing to eat. They're ready to go. And the shepherd uses the gate, who is Christ himself, and leads the people from being cooped up, banging their head on everything, out into the pastures of life. The cat and zeros are are you? There they are. They they watch sheep. You have sheep. Well, they did. Judy's wearing one of them. <laughs> Sorry. It was there, man. They said. Um, Alright, are we all back now? <laughs> they, if that's the only thing you remember of this sermon, I have failed miserably. It is the only thing some of you will remember. They said that uh, they said, you know, sheep can be the most endearing things. They're the most lovely, the most cuddly, sometimes the most warm, cozy, friendly, all that stuff. But I remember on Christmas Eve, Nielacant and Zero said to me, Sheep Are the dumbest things you have ever laid your eyes on you can go to the gate they said and you can open the gate and they will stand next to the gate and bang their head on the wall and you you want so much to say to them dude if sheep are dudes you there is life out here I'm leading you to something that is bigger, that can feed you and help you. But they will stay back in their little patterns and hit their head on the same wall. So Jesus says in John chapter 10, I have come that they might have life (laughs) and have it to the full. Shepherds are people who negotiate life for people who keep hitting their head on the same wall, time after time after time. Shepherds have a vision for people that other people don't have. Shepherds will look at a person who is greedy or materialistic, and they will look at a person who is overwhelmed with sorrow and see the same thing. They will look at someone who is afraid of terrorism, and they will look at someone who is having social or relational problems, and they will see the same thing. These are not problems rooted primarily in a lack of social skills or a lack of competency. These are problems of sheep without a shepherd. So part of what it takes to be a shepherd is we have a different vision of what people's Problems really are. And I think sometimes in our culture, it is because we have wrestled people's problems in life away from their spiritual core. Church, we hardly talk about the soul anymore, even in church. And it is because we have separated people's problems from their spiritual core that we keep coming up with leadership answers. When the answers are so often spiritual in their nature. I've been in a meeting with ministers lots of times. And we will say, you know, I think the person's real problem is that they are alienated from God. And almost one at a time, pastors will sit in circles and say something to the effect of, well, I can't really do anything about that. We have That's between them and God. We have to build their competency skills. No, listen. You're not a leader. You're a shepherd who brings people in relationship with the chief shepherd, the overseer of their souls. And so you see things fundamentally different even though you walk into a hundred different situations. Now the board. Oh, we got tons of time. We have six minutes. I said to you last week that the four things... mark a shepherd is that they know, they feed, they lead, and they protect. This, we said, is a shepherd. Now, you can look at other places and probably find the same thing in Scripture, probably, if you want. The Lord is my shepherd. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. You anoint my head with oil. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my energy enemies my cup runs over I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever you can read this you can read Ezekiel you can read Jeremiah Zechariah if you want but you always come away with these four marks of a shepherd but what we said was that these are not four things that shepherds do you can't pick one and say oh that's what I'm good at you do the other three So what that means is the people that we can shepherd is then limited to the number of people with which we can practice the four marks with some level of competency. There, that's about a two-minute review. So who are those people? So the first thing I did then was to sit down and say, Lord, I need to figure this out. Because I am talking to billions of people, and I can't remember their names. And of course I can't remember their names. What I learned was that I can only know people in varying degrees of efficiency. So think of it in terms of concentric circles. I'm going to make this bigger for people way in back. There, how's that? at the inner core is a small number of people from 3 to 12. This is the number of people according to sociological studies that I can know most intimately. Not 12, probably three. That means there's three people in my life, if I'm really doing well, that I could call at two o'clock in the morning and say, meet me in St. Louis, don't ask any questions, I'll explain when you get here, and they would actually meet me in St. Louis. The others would say, Can you just tell me when you get back? This is the number of people with whom I have a deep feeling of trust and sympathy, such that if they were to betray me, it would not ruin the friendship. I would interpret the betrayal in the context of the friendship. I would not terminate the friendship. There's probably 12 people in your life who, if they died today, you would mourn their death deeply. You wouldn't just miss them. You would agonize over the hole that they left in your life. That number is as low as three. It's as high as 12, depending on who you listen to and who you read. Oddly enough, Jesus had 12. It's Almost as if he knew what he was doing. Outside of that, There is a group of 50 people, which is the number of people that I can mobilize. I can get them around a single cause, fire a shot and say, everybody do this, and I can get all 50 people thinking as one person in the direction of the thing that I'm asking them to do. I can then step into their life, and I can hold them accountable for a short list of responsibilities once I've given them to them. Are you still with me? Outside of that is a circle of 150. The average number of people that you have on Twitter in the U.S. right now is about 147. The average number of people that you track on Facebook is about 150. The average number of Christmas cards that you send, if you still send Christmas cards, is about 150. So outside of the 50, there's another circle of people in your life that you are pretty close with. You know them. You know their families. You check in on them regularly. You can pick up with the conversation right where you left off the last time. Outside of that is a circle of 500 This is the number of people where you can know their name first and last when you run into them. And you might be able to pick up a few of the details, but not all of the details. And then outside of that is a number of 1,500. That's the number of people you can recognize their face, not their name. (laughs) Sometimes when I go to a family reunion, They're in the 1,500. It's bad. We'll pull in, and I'll say, man, who are those guys against the shed? My wife will say, well, the one's your cousin Brian. The other one's your cousin Tom. So I'll jump out of the car and go, Tom, Brian, hey. I'm trying to move them up a notch soon as the reunion's over back into 15 if i've seen your face yeah we're related see the problem here's what we're talking about you can have some degree of shepherding with probably 50 to 150 people that is you can know them feed them lead them and protect them to some extent you can do those things less with more people. But you have to do more with less. Some of you, right now, in high leadership positions, like me in our church, your, ten, your, your tendency, like mine, is to reduce the level with which you can shepherd so it's always a public event. It's always in a meeting or a lecture or some kind of public venue. And you'll tell yourself, we had a brief conversation, I checked in, touched, but I connected, is that the word? I connected with them. Listen, connecting isn't knowing. I told them what they needed to do, and I got their back. And you can do that to some extent with up to 150 people, but you have to narrow down the number of people that you shepherd intensely, or it will start losing its focus. So who are these people? Here's a grid to put over the top so you can start to identify them. One of them is <clears throat> you know them through access. God has already put these people into your life. You're not looking for somebody else. You're not going to go on Facebook when you leave and say, I've got to find 12 people. You already know 12 people who are part of the 50 and part of the 150. It's not another law. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Shepherd the flock over which God has made you an overseer. So that means he has already brought them into your life. Second, it's the people that are already in your life who already know your voice. And you can feed them. That's not 50 people. You don't go out and identify 12 people that you want to shepherd. No, that's what leaders do. Leaders say, I'm responsible for these people. But in shepherding, the people have to find you. They identify you. They know who their shepherd is. If I think I'm your shepherd, but you don't listen to me... and I don't know you deeply, and you don't think that I know you, then I'm not really your shepherd. I just think I'm your shepherd. Are you still there? So you have to look at your field of influence and say, from the people God has brought into my life, who are the ones that have already identified I may be something of a weighted voice in their life? Someone said to me recently, when I go to work, Steve, it seems like three or four people in the work around me, they just start, like, searching me out. This hasn't been happening for very long. But they come down the hall when the thing is over, and they'll start asking me questions. And they've never asked these questions before. Jack Robinson comes to the second service. He said, you know, I... I'm at work, and all of a sudden, these people have just surfaced, haven't been there all along. Jack has a history with addictions, and he says, People in addictions right now, there's not a lot of them, but they start finding their way to me and they start asking me questions, and it's like everything I'm saying to them, they're like tracking, they're writing it down. He may not realize this, but what's happening is God may be bubbling to the top of that list, this 50 in his life. He may be bubbling to the top, the people that are recognizing his voice he only needs now to say wait a second I might be their shepherd oh man which leads to the third one they are the people for whose life God has given you a deep passion there are a lot of people that you work with that you wish would get better. There's a lot of people that you work with uh, that you need to teach new things to. They need to raise their game. There's some people you work with frustrate the daylights out of you. That is not cause for shepherding. Shepherding is when you can look at a person's life and you see their life in predominantly spiritual terms. You have distilled what is wrong in their life to a spiritual core. You're not simply dispensing information or rallying people around a cause. Who do you know? Who do you already know that God has already put in front of you, around you, And up to this point, you thought they were friends, players, students, colleagues. You thought they were grandkids, kids. They were just youth in our church. But maybe this morning, as we start talking about, no, no, God may be placing me in a place where I can bring vitality to their souls.